before we begin, I have to ask a question. Who has an old, tattered piece of clothing that you still wear? That you still wear? Yeah? Be honest. We're all sort of friends here. Be honest. You put your hand nice and high. Okay, I have a shirt that uh, Faith wants to throw in the garbage. I got it in my first year of college at a value village in, I think, Langley. I was out for school in British Columbia. And it, uh, I used to thrift store shop and whatever, and I loved this shirt. And value village used to be cheap back then, so I think it was like 99 cents. And it said, simply the best. So I'll say that again because somebody coughed. Humility of the Lord. Simply the best. And I wore it with some haughty pride. But it was a yellow shirt. It was like, it was a lawnmower, a lawn tractor company, just something on the back. But it was this shirt that I, I sported this shirt. I loved this shirt. It was like my go-to shirt. For years and years and years, I still own this shirt. But now it is so threadbare, I can't wear it because you see all of me <laughs> when I put it on. And uh, Faith would like me to just throw it away. But I, I still have this shirt. That... That perspective, that old threadbare, worn out kind of thing that's about to fray, that piece of clothing that's about to fray, is probably the best uh, visual that I can think of for the shift in Mark's gospel. So we're kind of coming to the end. Remember I shared like I've broken Mark up into like seven chapters. We're, we're now kind of starting into the fifth chapter, which is actually chapter, somewhere in chapter nine. But the story of Mark takes a pivotal shift. And it's subtle, and if you're not really paying attention, um, you won't see it. And all the times I've read Mark, I, I, didn't, I didn't really see it. I'm only now starting to see those threads starting to, to fray. And we all know once a shirt or a piece of clothing or a sock or my Auntie Ina's slippers, like she made these beautiful slippers when she was still alive and they were so warm, whatever, but once you get that tiny little like rip in the bottom of the slipper, you know what's happening next, right? You know what's happening. It's going to fall apart. You don't have much time before the slipper's not usable. You can duct tape it all you want, but it's basically a dead slipper. You've got to throw it away. And this story is kind of like that. But in order to understand that, we have to kind of go back to the scene of the transfiguration. So you can imagine that scene back up on the, on the mountain where Jesus uh, is in this radiant light cloud and Moses and Elijah are standing beside him, and Peter and James and John are there, and they're watching this thing happen, and it's awe-inspiring, paradigm-shifting. Their lives are never the same again. And Jesus is there, and he's in between these two guys, and he's, his clothes are radiant white, and this, the cloud rolls in, the voice of God says, this is my son. And the fulfillment of the law and the prophets are standing right in between Jesus, and he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so if you, were, if you were Peter or James or John and you were watching this happen, it would have meant so, so, so much to them. If you've ever been in class or you ever had like a history lesson or you ever like one of those like aha moments, those light bulb moments where things just all kind of converge and make sense in like a singular second of time, I can imagine that Peter, James, and John had these kinds of moments, these stories that they had learned about since they were like wee little toddlers of Moses and Elijah. And Elijah on Mount Sinai with the theophany, the presence of God and the thundering cloud standing. And he's there and he receives the Ten Commandments. And, and Elijah, where he's on Mark Carmel and, and the whisper in, in, in the wind, God speaks to Elijah. And these beautiful, brilliant stories and all their history and all the years of interpretation 
and history flexed in this one singular moment. And it would have meant so much to them. And then it was done. And Jesus returns to normal and Moses and Elijah disappear. And they have to walk back down the mountain. And could you imagine what that walk down would have been like? As opposed to kind of wandering up and not knowing where Jesus is going, now they wander down. And there's a different kind of silence. I can imagine there's not a lot of talking. I can imagine those guys just like cannot believe what they just saw. And every step they take, it makes a little bit more sense and a little bit more sense. And their wheels are turning. And their hearts are churning. And they realize Jesus just isn't a good teacher. Jesus just isn't a healer. Jesus isn't even a good prophet. Jesus isn't even just the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. If they heard correctly, Jesus is God's Son. What does that even mean? How could they handle that kind of information? And so as they're kind of ascending down this hill, and remember that now this story is pointing to basically one direction and a meandering kind of river all the way to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is going now. He takes his time, but that's the direction they're going, Jerusalem. And one of the disciples kind of breaks the silence and maybe they don't know what to say, but they have this, these weird questions and, and they're like, well, why, Jesus, why does, this, does Elijah have to come first? Some chatter about this and kind of the, the idea of the Messiah and everything else. And Jesus says, yes. I can imagine him kind of pausing and saying, yes, Elijah has to come first. And then I can imagine Jesus kind of stopping and it sits in. He says, Elijah prepares the way for the Son of Man. But they treated him awfully. They treated him like dirt. They tossed him aside. For in this story, by this point, John the Baptist, his cousin, had been killed. He was dead. They treated John terribly. Herod uh, cut off his head for a party. Just threw, tossed him aside like he was a nobody. And that, that, that hurt Jesus. It wounded him. And he's, he's recounting, he's thinking, yes, Elijah, John the Baptist, has to come first to prepare the way for the Son of Man, but they treated him horribly, just like they're going to treat the Son of Man. And they're going to kick him around and toss him aside. They keep walking. The disciples don't really know what to make of this. This glorious moment on the mountain, and again, Jesus referencing that he is going to be kicked around and treated horribly, like Elijah before him. Strange. And as they're thinking about this and processing it, they, they come down to the mountain, and depending on your view of this, I think this, they're still at Caesar Philippi. They're still far away from, from Israel. And so something really strange happens. They come down and they can see their camp, but they see that the camp that they were at where they left some time before was still there. The disciples are still there. The leftover disciples like Philip and Andrew and Bartholomew and Thaddeus, they're all still there waiting. But so is a crowd. Another crowd has formed. 
And the crowd is like hostile. You can see that this isn't like a, a gentle crowd. There's like movement and, and swirling animosity. You can see tension and, and fingers pointing and kind of a rustling and movement. And as they get closer, they can hear arguing. And they can hear shouting. And, it, and they're like, how? And Peter is like, what's going on? And, and, and John's like, look, religious leaders here in Caesar Philippi that's that's strange and they keep moving towards and they can hear the arguing and you can hear things like you couldn't do it because darkness cannot cast out darkness and you can see these religious leaders and you can tell them from a mile away they've got their their very um, specific garb and their long beards and their their pomp, arrogant voices, and their fingers pointing right in the disciples' faces, and they're like nose-to-nose arguing. But the disciples are a little bit sheepish. You can tell that they're on the defensive. But they don't really know what to say. They don't even know how to, to, to combat. They are being attacked, and they have no defense. And so Jesus comes down in closer view, and this crowd that's swirling around, kind of watching all of this, someone in the crowd, as always seems to happen in Mark, someone says, look, it's Jesus. Now, I want you to pretend, if you can do this with me, to pretend that you've seen Jesus just for the first time. So I want you to, to, to shout out, look, it's Jesus, as if you've seen him for the very first time. You ready? One, two, three. Don't look at me. That was a little creepy. Look, 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 just pretend that he's out there somewhere and you've never seen him before. Because if, if depending on how you read this scripture, if there's still Caesar Philippi and this crowd is here, they've probably not seen Jesus. They've probably only heard of him. Jesus had like a really strong kind of celebrity status at this point. Most people had heard about him, but these folks probably actually hadn't seen him. So on the count of three, imagine you're seeing Jesus You've heard all about him. You've heard of his, the crazy things that he's done, and you're seeing him for the first time. Ready? One, two, three. Yes, good job. Because Mark tells us they excitedly rushed to Jesus. Look, it's Jesus. Is that him? Some people think, well, he's got the aura and the glow of the mountain experience, like Moses coming down the mountain. Some people think that, that he just was kind of unmistakably Jesus because of this glow that he had. But I think Jesus just was so distinctive that it was hard not to know that it was Jesus. And someone points it out, and this crowd rushes towards Jesus. And something really funny happens. As this crowd approaches Jesus excitedly, I finally, Jesus is here. He's in our area. Wow, it's Jesus. Jesus is like, I just pushes through. He's like, what's going on? He pays no attention. I don't care. What's, what's happening? What are you arguing about? While well, someone in the crowd, no one really responds. They might have been a little put off. Like, Whoa. Jesus, what's happening? Someone in the back of the crowd, a man kind of raises his arm and says, it was me. It was me. I'm sorry. And to look at this man's face, you'd see that he's very worn, weathered, life, like beating him down, look on his face. Tear-stained eyes, weariness about him, lacking confidence, lacking assurity, 
he's, he's suffering. He says, Jesus, it was me. I brought my mute son who's demon-possessed. I brought him to be healed by your disciples. He has a demon inside of him, and, he, and this, deezer, this demon throws him into a fit of seizures, and he, he rises on the floor, and he, he foams at the mouth, and it's awful, and it's horrible. And I brought him to your disciples to heal him, but they couldn't. Ah, the argument. The religious leaders finally feel like they've got something on the disciples. Look, your magic doesn't work. Look, your, your perspective is wrong. Look, where is your God? He failed. You can't cast darkness out of darkness. And they're arguing with the disciples, and the disciples are on the defensive because they failed. And I can imagine Jesus kind of looking over at his disciples, and the disciples, I can only see them kind of shamefully lowering their heads, failing to make eye contact. This is strange. Jesus gave them authority over the demons, over the powers of darkness. This is strange because many times before, the, the disciples had been very successful on their, on their, on their micro-missionary journeys. They have cast out demons. They have done this thing before. Why did they fail this time? Interesting. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. So now the crowd has, has hushed. I can imagine this father picks up his son and he brings him to Jesus. But as soon as the boy comes near Jesus, he goes into a seizure and a fit. And he's on the ground and he's writhing and foaming and gnashing his teeth. And I can imagine Jesus just gently kneeling down and, and touching his chest. And he looks up to the dad and he says, how long has this been going on for? And the father says, since he was a little boy, we don't know how old this boy is now, but this wasn't a couple of months. This wasn't a couple of weeks. This is, this is a lifelong affliction. And the father then says, it's, it's actually so bad, this, this demon, when it takes over him, tries to throw him into fires and tries to drown him in the water to get rid of him. Now, a modern reading of this scripture would say, well, he's, he has epilepsy. He's an epileptic. It's, it's clear. But actually, in the ancient days, it's, one scholar says like, that's a really, uh, a really naive reading of the ancient text. The ancients knew what epilepsy was. They, 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 they had a certain idea, and sometimes they actually called it that you could be kissed by the divine, a divine experience. If you had a seizure, it was actually almost seen as a good thing. And Mark isn't saying this is a seizure, as if he has epilepsy. Mark is saying clearly this, this boy is possessed by a demon, and the symptoms can look like seizures, and it can result in that. But the boy is demon-possessed, and the father is beside himself. It's been years of affliction, years of trying to live with this. And he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, please, whatever you can do, if, if you can help, if you can heal my boy, if you can make him whole, please, anything. And Jesus 
I can see as he's kind of kneeling and touching this boy, looks up to the dad, and I can see just the, the faintest grin, the faintest smile on his face is as if, Jesus says. For believers, anything is possible. And before the, the guy, Jesus could even finish his words, Jesus, this man blurts out, then I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus says, if, if you believe anything is possible, then I believe. Help my doubts. Help my unbelief. At this point, Jesus was already frustrated. He was frustrated with his disciples. He was frustrated with the crowd. He was frustrated with uh, the way they were arguing about this. I think he was tired of having to give signs to prove who he was. So Mark, Jesus says, what a generation. No sense of God. How many times have to go over these things? How much longer do I have to put up with this? Bring the boy here. They brought him. When the demon saw Jesus, it threw its, its boy into a seizure, causing him to writhe on the ground and foam with the mouth. He asked the boy's father, how long has this been going on? Ever since he was a little boy, many times it pitches him into the fire or the river to do away with him. If you can do anything, do it. Have a heart and help us. Jesus says, if, there are no ifs among believers, anything can happen. No sooner were the words out of his mouth and the father cried, than I believe, help me with my doubts. And seeing that the crowd was forming fast, Jesus gave the vile spirit its marching orders. Dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, out of him and stay out. Screaming and with much thrashing about, it left. The boy was pale as a corpse, so people started saying, he's dead. But Jesus, taking his hand, raised him, and the boy stood up. After arriving back home, the disciples cornered Jesus and asked, why couldn't we throw out the demon? He answered, there's no way to get rid of this kind of demon except by prayer. This frayed story, like a frayed shirt that's starting to come undone, this story in Mark, this pivotal turn in Mark, is for, for me a, a, a really personal story, oddly. I'm not, I wasn't overly familiar with the story. I've never really gone through Mark like this in such, in such intensity and such focus. And to kind of come to the story, there's things that really stand out after a careful, slow look at it. There's a couple things. Jesus is actually quite snappy. That's what I love about Mark. Mark is like, tell, is like juicy Jesus in full humanity. He's snappy. He's, he's, he's a little bit curmudgeon-y. He's, he's, not, he's not excited about the crowd and the whatever. He's really pointed. He's kind of short. Like, what a general, how long do I have to put up with this? I hear my dad's voice. How long do I put up with this? Stupid. No offense, dad, I love you. He's short. There's arguing. The, the, the disciples have failed. What's, what's going on there? What's, what's happening? And this man, 
as opposed to so many other examples, so many other healings, where the, the throngs of people come to Jesus and they're healed. And they just reach out and touch him and they're healed. This man says, if. Two-letter word, if you can do this. Not, I know you can do this, Jesus. Not, I'm, I'm certain that you can do this, Jesus. Not, I have such a blind faith in you, Jesus, that I know you can do anything. He says, if you can do this. And Mark's story, his gospel, leaves the land of where things are kind of easy and it, and it gets hard. And as this story progresses, this unexpected <coughs> kingdom that Jesus is kind of inaugurating requires unexpected faith. I read a quote. I don't know who's, who, who gave it. I, I should actually look it up because this is a great quote. The, 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 one of the best gifts of Judaism to the world was doubt. That way back, God chose distinctly not to come in the form of an idol. He chose distinctly not to be something you could hold and possess and see and fall prostrate to like all the other ancient Near Eastern religions. God chose to come as a non-entity like that, which requires us to have faith. The God we serve, we've never seen. The Jesus of the scriptures, we've never physically met. It requires faith. N.T. Wright said it, and I, I love N.T. Wright. He said it like this. He's like, the Christian walk, some people have this idea that when you become a Christian, that's actually the hardest part of your Christian journey, is the beginning. And he's like, it's actually often the opposite. The more you walk with Jesus, the harder it actually becomes. He says it's like the assignments become harder. What's asked of you is harder. The courage that Jesus is asking you to take becomes harder. And it requires faith. And so this, this raw story in Mark it's this beautiful depiction that you, it, like Jesus has done all this amazing stuff, but at the end of the day, he's actually asking for faith. To believe in something that you can't actually see. To be a part of something that you can't actually possess and hold. That you can't conquer. That you can't own. That you can't be in possession of. It is a life of faith. And it can be really hard. So personally, that, I feel like this, is, this story speaks to me personally because I feel like, if I'm honest, I feel like, I don't know if I'm the dad in this story or I'm the disciples. Like, boy, Jesus, like, I, I'm probably more of a disciple. I, I, I went to Bible college. I did seminary. Things seemed a lot easier then. And now I feel like I'm kind of failing. I don't know. Jesus, I believe, help me with my doubts. There's a thing that Jesus says in the end that I think is kind of the, 
kind of the, the, the not, it's not a secret. I think it's hiding in plain sight. And I think a lot of people try, don't know really what to make of this. He's, Jesus says, uh, says why, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we throw this demon out? Like, why, why didn't we have power over this? We could do it before. We did it there. We did it in that city. We did it with this person. Why not this one? What's so different about this boy? Jesus says there's no way to get rid of this kind of demon except by prayer. I don't think that's an incantation. I don't think that's a special kind of prayer. I don't think this is a special kind of demon. I think Jesus is saying, except through conversation with God, except through prayer, dialogue with the Heavenly Father in faith. That's, that's, that's the ticket. This morning we're gonna have a moment where we're gonna have communion and the basket's up here. And uh, my invitation to you as, you as you come up to take communion, which I'll lead through in just, in just a moment, is to just reflect quietly in prayer at your spot if you feel so inclined to do so. Dialogue with the Heavenly Father. And if you have to be so honest as this Father who's like, look, I don't know. And you have to use the, letter, the two-letter word, if, to get through your prayer, absolutely do it. God, I don't know. I'm struggling. If. Help me in my doubts. Because that will lead inevitably to a deeper understanding and a deeper faith in Christ through conversation and prayer with the Father. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you showed up 2,000 years ago. And though it's very, very hard um, to understand and to admit that sometimes we would really love the easy pass, the easy way out, where things just make crystal clear sense all the time. We know that's not, that's not real life, and that's certainly not a life of faith. And so, Jesus, I pray for, for all of us here, myself included, that when we're in those times of the shadows of the ifs, where things are not clear, where they're not obvious, where it's not a mountaintop experience, where there's light and radiant and, and audible voices and but we're in the valley and we're struggling and we're suffering and we're saying if that we would have the fortitude, the courage and the strength to continue to converse with you, to lay it out bare and to ask for help in our doubts. And Jesus, I am so grateful and I'm so thankful that though this story is a, is a fraying story and then the, the story that Mark tells gets harder and more difficult and ultimately leads to your death, it doesn't end in death. That it ends in resurrection, it ends in renewal, it ends in a refound life. And so through our doubts and through our ifs would we find new life by your spirit. I thank you for this morning, I thank you for your story. I thank you for who you are. In your name we pray, amen.